We continue on this uh, glorious Wednesday afternoon. It's time for a regular feature with the Star Tribune editorial board this week featuring John Rash and Patricia Lopez. Both are on the John Schuster Caldwell Banker Hotline. Let's start with the primary last night. And let's start with what seems to be the biggest story in the state, that Ilhan Omar wins. She's going to win. This is a, a district where, if you're the Democrat, you're going to win 999 times out of 1,000. She defeats Dom Samuels in a much, much closer race than expected. When she faced Anton Melton Mukes in 2020, it was a 20-point victory in a race where uh, Melton Mukes raised a lot of money. In this one, Don Samuels, former city council member, recognizable, ran against her, and it was extraordinarily competitive. John, I'm going to start with you. I saw some of the data, which uh, stands out to me, that Don Samuels, even with his close uh, loss, received 15,000 fewer votes than Anton did in 2020. But the difference was... Congresswoman Omar received 47,000 fewer. What's your explanation on those numbers? That while the situation with the sitting representative is the same, what in terms of how people might perceive her, what has changed dramatically is people's perception of the district in which she's been elected in. And very specifically, crime has become a much bigger issue and her high-profile support of the amendment in Minneapolis that would have created a new Department of Public Safety and her feud with the mayor and the perception that her and Don Samuels were on, in effect, different sides of the public safety issue made a big difference, sapped some of her support. You also have a different level of turnout than you did in the last time that she had to run in a primary. But it really, no doubt, will be a wake-up call to her campaign in terms of just how close she came to losing and the likelihood that an opponent in two years from now is going to come from the same perspective, maybe even theoretically the same family, um, in terms of taking on Representative Omar. And this is, this is going to be an ongoing debate. I, Pat, uh, Pat, thanks for coming on, as always. I think John makes excellent points. Can I also add that maybe the fact that Congressman Omar received 47,000 fewer says that many of her supporters didn't believe the vote was going to be as close as it was, and if they thought it was going to be this close, they would have voted. Is that also a part of it in your view? Um, That would not be the first conclusion I would uh, jump to, honestly. I think there were um, uh, other compelling races going on. There's the Hennepin County attorney's race, the Hennepin County sheriff's race. Um, Democrats would have probably wanted to get involved in that. Um, I don't know. Is it possible also that it might be a drop-off in enthusiasm for her? I think that's also a possibility. Um, people are, are tired of that, maybe particularly that brand of politics. Maybe they thought it was a close race. I don't I don't know. I I couldn't speculate on that. Let's also talk, and I'll start with you, Pat, on Brad Finstead. We'll take over the seat in southeastern Minnesota after the passing of 
Jim Hagedorn. What is your view of Finstead and also in a race that was more competitive than a lot of people thought it might be? Um, Finstead is uh, is a conservative. I think he's, you know, from a conservative's perspective, he's probably a good fit for that district. Munson, I think, was a little further um, to the right, probably quite a bit further uh, to the right even than um, than Finstad. And you had the uh, head of the Republican Party entering into that race, um, you know, criticizing Munstad for challenging uh, the Republican endorsement. I don't know that. I think what he wound up with, 25, 27 percent of the vote, I don't know that that's all that close. Um, I would have expected he was working hard in that race. Uh, he wanted to prove something. Um, I think he made some inroads, not anywhere near enough to overtake Finstead. John, Jim Schultz defeats Doug Wardlow. Schultz will face Ellison. I expect this to be a very contentious race. Does Schultz have a better chance to defeat the incumbent attorney general than Wardlow did two years ago in a race that was very close? Absolutely. And not only do I think it'll be contentious, I think it'll be close. And I think that, in as in many cases, Doug Wardlow became part of the issue in the last election against Attorney General Ellison. And this time, it appears that the issue of crime transcended, in particular, how people perceive the Twin Cities, Minneapolis and St. Paul in particular, in greater Minnesota may play a great deal in how people perceive this race. And so what Jim Schultz allows the Republicans to do is to put the focus on the issue of crime and what the role of the attorney general should be and take the focus off of some of the more controversial components of Doug Wardlow's candidacy and past, which would have happened this time as well if he would have gotten a nomination because of his close association with Mike Lindell and the whole issue of President Trump's trying to overturn the 2020 election. So I think that this is going to be a big part of the upcoming fall race and may increase turnout as we get closer to November. Let's go to uh, Mar-a-Lago and let's go to the astonishing news, which the former president himself broke yesterday, that the FBI had entered his now home, Mar-a-Lago, had went through the proper channels, and this is unprecedented. And the FBI went there, removed the 15 boxes that they were expected to remove regarding the Presidential Records Act and potentially information, confidential information that should have remained at the White House. But now the reports say another 10 boxes were removed. I want to ask both of you the number one question as of today you would like answer. John, I'll just go with what my number one would be first, and then both you guys chime in. I want to know what happened from the June 30th meeting where the former president's attorneys and representatives of the Department of Justice met at Mar-a-Lago, and there are reports that both sides felt like they were making progress to then the FBI, either through a grand jury, a federal magistrate, you know Christopher Ray was in the loop. You know Merrick Garland was in the loop. For me, it's what caused them to decide they had to go in. What's the number one question that you would like asked about what has happened or what did happen in Mar-a-Lago? 
related to what you reflected upon, what specifically was in the boxes or did the FBI think was there and compelled them with such alacrity to decide that they had to, in effect, seize it in this search of Mar-a-Lago? And related to that question, what led President Trump to believe that he had a right to hold on to this when the law is quite clear for Republicans and Democratic former presidents that this is data that belongs to the National Archives and thus the American people? Why was he so um, worked? Why did he work so hard to hold on to it? And thus, what was it? Pat, how about you? Well, uh, you know, the same. And I think that's reflected in the um, editorial we ran today. Um, the law is very unambiguous on this point. That you cannot remove. the. It's a federal crime to remove these documents. So I think, you know, without wondering what's, what's in the boxes, there's the mere fact that he absconded with them, took them to Mar-a-Lago with no authorization, um, and has kept them. There shouldn't even be any negotiations. Why does he even still have these boxes? It's not an issue. They need to be returned to the White House. But don't you believe it was more than that? And, and, and adding to my belief of that is if the FBI finds Representative Scott Perry, who was a mm-hmm. true believer in Donald Trump, a true believer in that the election was rigged, if they're taking Scott Perry's phone, Pat, it's more than that was just in the 15 boxes, I believe. Oh, yes. I, I, I think that's, you know, I mean, we could speculate endlessly about what's in the boxes. What are the connections? Is this, you know, part of a grand jury, um, you know, proceeding? The fact is we don't know. And so we're just going to have to wait until some of these um, uh, things materialize. In the meantime, I would say, for all of those officials um, that are supporters of Trump that are demanding to know what was in the warrant, um, Trump can release that at any time. Last thing for you. Pat's 100% right, John, that Donald Trump can release that. I believe the DOJ should step out and that the circumstances are so unique. This is a former president. And I don't believe their their actions and just speaking in court, which they normally do, is enough. I think this is so unprecedented. I believe the DOJ should provide greater clarity. And if they want to just offer up statements and not answer questions, that's not as much as I would like. But do you think the DOJ should step forward, which they have the ability to do? I think, as always, for the American people and certainly for American journalists, I think that uh, more information is better and their ability to explain what was behind all of this will only help our politics and our nation. And it may take some of the alarming immediate Internet um, and and, uh, press conference comments that have so inflamed an already deeply divided society um, and maybe cool temperatures a little bit if people really know knew what was behind this. And my sense is the fact that former President Trump has not released what is in the warrant is reflective that it's damaging to him. And also being a savvy politician, he knows this has benefited him 
within the Republican Party, because even potential rivals, including his former partner and vice president, Mike Pence, have rallied to his defense. And so the issue becomes his sense of persecution as to actually why he had and what he had in this uh, in terms of what really belongs to the National Archives. I'm going to say that the onus should be on President, former President Trump. He ought to explain why he took those boxes, what's in them, are they classified, and uh, as to DOJ, I don't want them to do anything that's going to jeopardize the investigation. To the extent that they can explain their actions without doing that, I think that would probably be of a benefit. I don't think it's really going to change anything because um, the other side already has their narrative down. They've decided without any evidence whatsoever um, that the FBI was planting um, evidence uh, out of what, you know, uh, uh, that just seems to be concocted out of whole cloth. So I, I think we should look, let's not lose sight of the fact that Trump is the one who took these boxes of information that he had no right to. That's where the proper onus should be. Thank you to both of you. I appreciate it. And we'll talk again soon. Thank you. Thanks. Patricia Lopez and John Rash from the Star Tribune.